All right, let's do it. Welcome to Everything Trying to Kill You episode... What episode is it? Episode 9! We are doing one of my favorite films slash books, One One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and we have also one of my favorite people as a guest. Second, so I'm Megan. I'm Mary Kay. And our lovely guest is my old college roommate, Sarah. Sarah, tell us about yourself. Megan and I have known each other for like a million years now, since freshman year of college. (laughs) Um, so I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I work at a college as a registrar. Um, so, and I have three fur children. Um, and that's, that's, that's pretty much it. And you and Mary Kay have a similar college paths. We do. I studied English too. Yeah. And then creative writing after that. So I'm just going to sit over here in my corner by myself. Takes all kinds, Megan. Not everyone can be an English major. It's true. It takes a powerful person to day drink. I mean, yeah. That's what it is, right? Yeah. That's all. You ever okay. heard of an author yeah. who didn't day drink? I don't think so. I mean, maybe if that wasn't their substance of choice, perhaps. Like Ken Kesey, for example, more acid than alcohol. Perhaps. From what I understand. <laughs> Whatever gets the creative juices flowing. Yeah, but I think his was more for like a, a from the interview I listened to with him, it was more like a, a spiritual thing, and then he kind of got out of it when it became more of a recreational thing. I mean... That's what he's saying, like, 50 years later. So who so, knows? Take it with a grain of salt. Grain of salt, <laughs> shot of penicillin, yeah. So for our icebreaker. Yeah, speaking of recreational activities, we found a quiz for which One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest character you are. And the first question is, what do you like to do on a Friday night? Clean your house, play cards with friends, have intellectual conversations, watch TV and chill out, or stay home with your mom. That last one is real Norman Batesy. <laughs> like a watch TV on a Friday night kind of person. You can't you can't do anything on a Friday night. You're just so exhausted. See, it is a Friday night when we're recording it and we are having an intellectual conversation kind of. So I'm just I'm just saying, but I feel like I'm going to go with play cards with my friends. Although playing cards maybe not, but like bullshit and playing the Sims similar. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, see, I think I was going to put playing cards with friends. Not necessarily, like, cards cards, but, like, you know, I like Dungeons and Dragons, and that's close. I think that counts as cards. Settlers and Catans. Yeah, it's board games. So that's what I'm going to put. Okay, I'm doing that, too. Okay. Oh, if you were committed to an asylum, what would it be for? Being a psychopath? Schizophrenia? Being obsessed with control, society doesn't accept you, and mother decided it would be best. Yikes. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Yikes. I mean, I know that all these mother questions are for Billy. I know that. But but it's also very Norman Batesy. I'm just saying, a boy's best friend is his mother. Um, yeah. It is. (laughs) Would being obsessed with control being, like, control over other people, or is that their weird way of saying, like... OCD, but not actually saying OCD. I think, I think the latter. Probably that latter one. Yep, yep. Okay. Well, we already have a diagnosis of that, so we're just going to push it. Yeah, we're just, yeah. I'm going <laughs> to, yep, that's going to be me as well. <laughs> I was going between that one and society doesn't accept you, as in kind of, you know, for a while, like especially with Central State, it was like men would get tired of their wives and be like, she's crazy. <laughs> I'm an asshole, but she's crazy. So I think I'm going to go with that one. 
I think I'm going to go with society. Cause just because you guys, I wanted to have a different. I want to do something different. Yeah, you need to be a little different. Okay. How do you react to authority? I do what other mother tells me to. Not well, to say the least. Lay low, make them think you can't hear them. I am the authority, or resistance is pointless. Might as well just go with it. Oof. Uh, not well, to say the least. I don't like being told what to do, so... Don't... <laughs> <laughs> Megan, how did I know you were going to answer that? <laughs> um, unfortunately, I'm probably, like, a resistance is pointless kind of person. I mean, I was I was leaning towards lay low, but I don't... I think that resistance is pointless is probably more accurate. I'm going with I am the authority. That's me. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh, man, this next one's a great question. How do you flirt? It's a be courteous, be a gentleman or a lady. Be courteous, be a gentleman. Be courteous, be a lady. Um, I don't. Be charming and charismatic. I get lucky. Watch from afar and hope to be noticed. I really just, I really just want to hear Megan's answer. I'm prepared for it. Oh, man. I think I'm just going to put be, be charming. I think it's because I'm weird and quirky, and Andrew tells me that my weirdness is charming, which is probably a lie, but we'll pretend that he's telling me the truth. I'm going to put be charming. That's what I'm going to put, too. Charming. Um, let's go with... I want to do something different. Let's not do that. Uh, I'm just going to go with I get lucky, because I don't... I feel like I don't intend to... And it just happens. I feel like people find you more than you find people. People are just like, hey. <laughs> it's true. That's a good way to be. I'm adopting this one. It works. It's worked for you thus far. Yes. Yep. What's your biggest vice? Cleaning urges? Smoking? Mother? Gambling? Or gum chewing? Yeah, cleaning for me, for sure. False. Opposite. Oh, I was, I was like, that's what I'm putting. But oh. you were being sarcastic. That was, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> No, it's fine. No, I came home. Literally, we came home from Andrew being in the ER. And the first thing I did was like, make sure he was cool, got him his meds. And I started organizing things. So yeah, cleaning. I feel like I don't clean to the point of it being a fault. I mean, I like my shit where it goes. But like, I don't need to clean up dishes right away. I do. Okay. I don't, it doesn't bother me that other people don't, but. <laughs> no, there's no judgment here. We're just, this is no. our icebreaker. It's quiz. Yeah. It's good. Let's air our laundry to our viewers. <laughs> We're not judging, Megan. I'm going to say smoking. I don't smoke, but I do drink. And I feel like that might be one of my bigger vices. It, they're both substances. They're both like escapist kind of things. That's close. And habits. So I'm going to do that one. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Um. My biggest vice? I don't know. I don't know. Any, none of these are really... I think I have lots of vices. I don't think any of these are, the, are it. But I'm going to go with cleaning urges if I had to pick one of the five. I dig it. Ooh, I like this next question. I'm ready for it. What's your best quality? Caring for others, vocabulary knowledge, leadership abilities, authoritative presence, or your ability to listen? Those are not mutually exclusive um, things. I know. I'll put... I don't know, caring for others or ability to listen. I feel like either of those go pretty well with, like, my job, too. I'll put caring for others because, yeah, caring for others. I'm going to go with vocabulary knowledge because English major. I mean, why not? Yeah. I was going to do, maybe you guys can help me, either ability to listen or leadership abilities. I feel like those are really closely related. 
I would put ability to listen because I feel like you're really good at listening. Thank you. Because whether like we need to vent or we're actually coming up with like a game plan, I feel like you always listen. And I feel like a lot of people pretend like they're listening just so they can say what they want to say, like they're waiting for your turn. But I always feel like you're actually listening to Thank me. you. I am listening. You're and I, I get immediately self-conscious if I like zoned out for a second. I'll be like, I'm so sorry. I zoned out. It was an accident. It's not your fault. It's just because I'm tired. <laughs> okay. So I'll put that. Thank you for saying that. That was really kind of you also. You're welcome. What do you like to do in the summer? Visit mother. Fish. Revisit your old reservation, ruin people's lives, or read a dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm real tempted to put ruin people's lives. Because I don't feel like I do any of these other things. (laughs) Do it. I feel like if I don't put visit mother, that my mother's going to be very disappointed. And she is a delight, as we previously discussed. You don't want to upset Mama Martin. No, we do not. What do you do, Mary Kay? I was going to put visit mother too, but I feel like when I go home, it's not just to visit my mom. It's to see like everyone. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's mostly for my mom, but should I do that? Or, I mean, cause I'm not, I'm not native American. So I would put reservation, but I feel like that's gunning for chief specifically. It is. But I feel like I'm more chief than Billy. I'm going to go res. I'm going to go with the res. Okay, well, yeah, well, maybe it's not necessarily like you're revisiting your old reservation since we're kind of taking these on loose terms. Like, maybe it just means, like, visiting your roots. Like... Oh, and I have done the whole, like, go to Lebanon Yeah, I was going to say, maybe you're just, just going to Lebanon. I've never... Okay, let's do that. I'll okay. do that one. Oh, it's calculating my results. Ooh. But I have to watch an ad for The Sims first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got mine. Oh, I got my results, too. Um, I'm okay with them. Did you get yours, Sarah? I did. Yep. I got Harding. It says, my, what an impressive vocabulary you must have. Try to tone it down a bit, okay? And I feel like <laughs> that's not inaccurate. What'd you get, Mary Kay? McMurphy. Hell Me yeah. Me too! Yay! Me too. And the description is, you're one crazy guy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's true about us. It's true. I dig it. All right. Well... Now that we're talking about characters, let's jump right in. Let's do it. Does someone want to give, like, a quick background on the film? I don't know if I'm going to be very good at it this time, but I can try. Go for it. You know I'm bad at this. I'm going to try to stay with just the movie, but I won't be able to. What I usually like to do is watch the movie first and then read the book, because if I do it in reverse order, I'm always just like, in the in the book, it was this way. So I try to watch the movie first, which is, I feel like counterintuitive for most people because they're like well I've already already know what happens but I'm not as interested in what happens as the way that it happens and why so I think it works better for me it's like watching the movie slower when you read the book like more nuance anyway so I did that so our story our our, our chief protagonist is chief chief Bromden who's was a giant Native American silent man in this uh, mental health facility and people he's so quiet that people don't think he can talk and also think he can't hear so he's like your perfect narrator i think because he's you know not objective but nobody is acting differently because he's there which is weird except for when mcmurphy shows up which happens almost immediately they have the um when he's in the the doctor's office He's like, do you know why you're here? And he's like, I'm a psychopath. That's what they told me. And he's like, well, do you know what that means? And he's like, I fight and fuck too much. And I'm like, me too. <laughs> I don't understand why that's weird. Yeah. So he's at, he's at the asylum and then he kind of, he basically like shakes it up the whole time. He's like, 
the most encouraging presence in the whole movie and that he he basically gives like everybody individual pep talks and it might not be to make them better it's probably for his own entertainment i think it's a little bit of both yeah you're probably right because he's like bored and he wants the adventure and so he's trying to make new friends but also try to help them because they seem they're really so debilitated when he shows up like they just don't believe in themselves very much which uh is a product of the machine like chief says which is Nurse Ratched. Uh, they go on the boat. It's like a field trip, but not a very well-planned one. He just kind of wings it. They, they pick up a sex worker, his friend. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, is the boat scene. <laughs> yeah, that when they're on the boat. Because what's the guy's name who's steering it? Ch- Ches- is it Cheswick? Yeah, Cheswick sounds right. In the movie, he doesn't have any experience. And then in the book, he was like a sailor for a long time so he has like a lot of experience and then he doesn't really talk until McMurphy's like we're gonna go sailing and he's like well what you need to do is this this and this and he goes oh he sounds like you have some experience why don't you come along so they do they go on the on the boat all together and uh they get in trouble and they get back and then um Candy's like when can I come see you again Billy and they're like two weeks at two o'clock and she goes okay I'll see you at two in the afternoon they're like no two in the morning so they Basically, yeah, they're like bring a friend for the uh, for the night shift, which she does. I guess I guess her friend is a sex worker too. I'm not sure about that, or if she's just kind of. And I was delighted that that Scatman Crothers was in this movie too. I really like him. Um, so they have a big party and they get in trouble, obviously, because they don't escape the way that they're supposed to. Everybody's supposed to bust out, and they don't. They pass out instead, basically. <laughs> common mistake we've all made it look we've all been there i mean it's fine usually this is like a little bit higher stakes lower reward but so all of the nurses the day shift comes in and everybody gets in big trouble medicine cabinet's been busted open and everybody's high and everything and christopher lloyd is there at some point like a cigarette catches his pants on fire and he freaks out and they're like why are you freaking out and there he's like i have a cigarette on fire in my pants but he doesn't say that because he's too busy freaking out which I guess is not really, like, an accurate term for it, but that's what I would be doing if my pants were on fire, is freaking out. So, anyway, so Nurse Ratchet is uh, counting heads, and uh, she's like, where's Billy? And everybody's like, hee, hee, And then they, she finds him with Candy, and then she basically shames him hard in front of his peers, and they're like, "There's, it's fine, like, we would all love to have been you, it's fine. She sends him into the doctor's office um, after telling him she's going to call his mom, which for, ma- makes him really upset. Leaves him alone in the doctor's office, and then she goes back in to check on him. And he has cut his own throat, which is a real commitment. Like, it's uh, as far as completing suicide goes, I feel like there's no coming out of that one. You've made a, a decision. Not that that is the way that that, is, like, that goes normally. I'm just saying, like... That's a real violent way. One of the nurses comes back and tells the head nurse that it's happened. And then McMurphy loses his shit on Nurse Ratched and tries to choke her to death. And he almost does. And then they he's isolated. And so, is she, I mean, she's taken to, you know, medical attention. And this is after, by the way, they've already been given the shock treatment. I um, See, I knew I was going to leave something important out. So they had shocks earlier, which is horrifying. That, to me, was the scariest scene is when he was getting the electroshock therapy but yeah um so after that they take him away and 
I mean, we all know what's going to happen, like, from the beginning. Like, from the beginning when they were telling, like, this is, you know, she's one of the only people in the world who still uses lobotomies as punishment. It's like, that's going to happen to someone at the end. Um, So, yeah, he is lobotomied, I guess. Lobotomized. Yeah, okay. That sounds right. I was like, it happens at him, though. There's no way to put that in the active voice for him. That's what I was trying to do. And I was like, no, that just, Chief finds him. He wakes up when they wheel him back, and he's like, no, that's not right. He tries to, like, shake him and wake him up. And then he gives him a big hug. And then he smothers him with the pillow. It's like a mercy killing. And then he lifts the control panel, throws it through the window, and the grate, of, the iron grate of the window, and escapes. And that's, I think, the way it ends, right? I've been gone for a long time. That's how it ends. Him walking, like, into yep. the sunset, basically. Sunrise, but yeah. <laughs> Which I think is more fitting for... The, the sunset because it's, it's like the a beginning new beginning his... for him it's a whole new right, start yeah. well i guess then i can maybe go ahead and give some background you know since on like mental hospitals at least in the time in which this took place you know it's based on the oregon state mental hospital like a real mental hospital and it's really realistic in its portrayal as far as layout and rules and regulations especially for this time period It takes place in the 1950s, and McMurphy decides essentially that life in a mental hospital would be a cakewalk compared to life in prison, which, how's that for irony? He was quite wrong, but it was actually filmed in the Oregon State Mental Hospital, and originally the book was intended to kind of highlight the terrible conditions on these mansion institutions which is what they were called, and these were built in the mid-1900s usually. They're not super worthy of pharmaceutical treatment or any sort of ethical treatment at all. They were just simply meant to be these massive, massive places for the displacement of those that were mentally ill. They were in need of housing because they weren't really treating them. So it's basically just a hotel for the mentally ill. And it started a trend called moral management which was meant to make up for the harsh behavior of the patients that were in there. They gave them what appeared to be lush living quarters. So there were big windows, and there were courtyards, and they had TVs and activities. But So they're like, but look at this nice setting we provided you. We're still going to unethically treat you like shit, though. So what that did was eventually put in the Kirkbride plan. And the Kirkbride plan says that it was a law that said that you could ethically essentially treat these patients however you needed to or wanted to in order to manage them as long as Can't do their that. living quarters nope. were that's, lush. Oh my gosh, so that's kind of what so this scary. Movie, oh yeah, so that's what this movie was kind of based on. Yeah, so the real Oregon State was had tons of lawsuits for it, for like treating their patients poorly. And it became repopular again in 2004 because they dug up, it was like 3,500 3, like cremated bodies that were originally stuck in copper barrels over like the last hundred years. They just got tired of them, didn't know what to do with the bodies of old lobotomy patients or anything, cremated them, shoved them all in copper barrels together, and just like buried them. So those were dug up. And uh, half of the hospital is still in use today. The half of it that's no longer in use is full of like asbestos and rotting wood and still has lead paint in it and it's just blocked off but the other half of the hospital is literally still in use today and the conditions have not gotten much better that's um what they're i mean 
we're in Georgia, so it's relevant to me to mention this. I don't, I mean, it's not super relevant to what you're talking about, but like Central State Hospital was one of the ones to do that. And um, I remember my grandmother, when I told her I was going to go to school in Milledgeville, she was like, first of all, are you sure? Like, do you want to go there? Like, there's nothing there. You know that, right? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, but have you been there though? Like she was really like pushing, like, are you sure, you know, what you're getting into. And, um, she was like, I just remember like riding by central state and just like women would just stand in the windows. Like they were just standing watching cars go by because they they knew that there was nothing they could ever do to get out. And, um, I mean, they like, it's a horrifying place. Like people, my students used to tell me that like, we just went into central state. And I was like, why? If any place in the world is haunted. It's that place. Like I've I've been to Central State, Bill, and one time we were there and we're like, let's go inside. And so like it's not open to the public. So it's we not found a open. little corner that everyone uses to kind <laughs> it's of not open. No, that everyone uses to get in. <laughs> and we definitely essentially broke into Central State in hopes of catching, I don't know, some sort of if something like you said, if something's going to be haunted, it's going to be some of these like old mental institutions from back in these days because people were treated terribly. Listen, if I was a normal ass woman and my husband put me in an institution, you could bet your ass I would haunt the shit out of him. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We definitely have one here in Raleigh too. That was like closed. I don't remember how many years ago now, but essentially when they closed, they just like let all of the patients go with like no, no treatment plan, no like preparation. Yeah. Just, like, closed it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Bye. That sounds super healthy. Just like a sorry slap on the ass going normal life. Great plan. I mean, it's a lot like what they do with with prisoners when they're released. Nothing bad can happen from this. Here's a suit. Good luck. Everything has changed. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Have a dandy day. Yeah. You shouldn't have been here anyway. My bad. (laughs) So that's back then. That's in the 50s. Yeah. It's a little better now. Things have gotten better now. There's still a ways, a ways that things can still go. But there's definitely a lot more laws in place now that protect those that are admitted either voluntarily or with the help of somebody else uh, to protect their rights compared to back in the 1950s. There was a lot more focus then on just admitting people and keeping them and not really any focus on wellness or any sort of discharge there yeah there was no focus on rehabilitation because the plan was they're not going to rehabilitate and get out you're literally just here until you become such a problem that we lobotomize you and cremate your body and put it in a copper barrel with a couple other hundred people and bury it in the backyard and hopefully we don't have to talk about this ever again yeah and we see that too within the movie there's a big difference between the i almost called them inmates that's how bad like this looks like the residents yeah, how the residents are treated based on if they're volu- like they were voluntarily they admitted themselves because they can sign themselves out, um, versus I think McMurphy and like one other guy are the only ones who are committed by law. So yeah, so the the voluntary part of it even is a brainwash. Like Nurse Ratchet is like, do you, are you sure like you can leave? Like, what would your mother say? Like, I don't think that I don't think you can do it by yourself. And then like Billy is immediately like, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, but as soon as she is almost choked to death and disappears, like everybody is discharging in the book, at least we don't see it in the movie, but like everybody's leaving, signing themselves out because they're like, Oh, well, I'm not worse. Like I'm not like, I'm not worse than I was when I started. And at what cost do I stay? Finally, like somebody puts it in, I don't know. It's, 
that part was like a happy ending, but you know, Mike Murphy had to fall on that grenade for everyone. So, which is unnecessary, should be not necessary. I find it kind of ironic that, um, that he always like the whole movie sees himself as being totally different from everyone else. He's like, well, I chose to be here. And they're like, well, actually, no, you didn't exactly. And then he ends up being the one who has to like suffer for everyone else. Yeah. And they, he, uh, chief even says that he's like, we made him do it. Like he felt like he had to do it for us. Cause he knew we couldn't. Yeah, so for anybody that wants to know why we chose this movie, because it's not a traditional horror movie. It is horrifying, It's still yes. horrifying for these reasons alone. Here's the end of our episode. Goodbye. No, just kidding. Yeah, there's definitely a weird power dynamic that's portrayed, especially from Nurse Ratchet, And I think that for the most part, people tend to enter this career field of uh, the men- like mental health or behavioral health. It's either you go in it because you truly do want to help people and and rehabilitate people and I think that's why I got into it personally is because you go through and you think that these people are definitely worth way more than they're being treated and then you get like Nurse Ratchet and you're just going in there truly to get high on the sense of power and there's you know she's using control to maintain her idea of order not any sort of ethical order it's what's order to her and she uses power and manipulation to maintain that because she is a shitty, shitty person for lack of any sort of intelligent uh, description of her. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's the appropriate vernacular. Yeah. She, she's, she's a shitty person. <laughs> there are definitely some racial issues as well for the most part. I mean, in this time period, especially the, you know, we see it in this movie, the guards were people of color. They're like the only black people that were working in this hospital were black men. And that's because that was seen as kind of a grungy, dirty and unwanted job. And that's where that's where black people worked at this time. And in the movie, they kind of get portrayed as this really not okay stereotype. They're kind of they're not super intelligent. They're just all brawn, no brains. They're kind of goofy. They really like, you know, they're easily bribed simpletons basically is kind of the stereotype that we see in the movie and and also power hungry yeah also power hungry but they're definitely just kind of given the crappy the crappy job so there's like some there's also no residents who are of color i didn't do much looking into it but now i kind of wish i did i wonder since at the time that this movie took place in in the 1950s would segregation still be an issue or would that be something that would happen in institutions would they hold prisoner uh, not prisoners patients of color in their own institution i know it does feel like a prison would uh would white patients and black or colored patients be kept in another institution or another wing would we actually even see them mingling in this setting i don't i'm not confident that a residential facility would have been available to people of color at all that's uh, a very good point. So maybe that's why we don't see any inmates of color other than, I mean, Chief is about as... Yeah, I was going to say, they forget he's there. Right, and he's, like, definitely, definitely ostracized from the rest of them. Like, they're like, he's just a big, dumb Indian. Like, that's basically what they call him. They actually, in fact, call him deaf and dumb. Right, so yes. You're right, yeah. Which is probably why I was like, there aren't any. But Chief is over there, like, in the corner being like... I don't exist. Just pretending I don't exist. 
He's minding his own business. The actor that was chosen for chief was actually picked on accident. He was a park ranger at a nearby park by the mental institution that they filmed it in. And they needed somebody that was Native American for the part, but they couldn't find any that was Native American and fit, like, the size and stature of somebody that they needed for Chief. Oh, okay. I was like, here we go with this Aladdin casting shit again. Here we go. So they definitely just found him randomly as a park ranger, and they were just like, so how do you feel about acting? But he did a fantastic job. He's by far one of my favorite, like, characters in the movie. And also beautiful. He is beautiful. I like what you said. You're like, can we talk about how Chief could get it, but we do need to grow his bangs out, but he could still get it. I mean, I can get past it. Oh, my gosh. So I think it's, like, super interesting in the film how, I mean, and it goes back to what we were talking about, about how this really isn't about treatment at all. It's about keeping them sort of docile and easy to manage. Um And so there's never any explanation of, like, what treatments are or, like, what medication they're taking. Like, when Jack Nicholson asks his first night there, he's like, so what is this? And they're like, just take it. It's good for you. Yeah, it's great. It's a good choice. Trust us. Yeah, it's fine. Don't be concerned. Um, And this electroshock therapy is fine. Don't worry about it. Like Totally safe. No side effects. Again, trust us. And there's also, like, the element of, like, forceful administration. We're actually not going to have a conversation about this. You're either going to take it or we're going to give it to you forcefully. Like You take it or take it. There's no take it or leave it option. You can either take it or take it. <laughs> yes, those are your options. So I just think it's interesting that it's like portrayed as a mental institution, but really it's not. It's just a building that houses people. Yeah, and it's also like... um the the things that are supposed to be therapeutic, like, people were getting shocked up in, through the 60s, right? People were getting shocked through the 80s. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. Yeah. That seems, that seems bad to me. I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but it seems very bad. Yeah, and so in the book, they say that she, Nurse Ratchet, is the only one who prescribes it as a punishment. It's never a treatment for her. She knows it doesn't work. It's a punishment because it hurts and then you're debilitated for several days or weeks. And then in the book, they talk about the lobotomy as a mental castration. Uh, I think Harding is the one who says that. And I think it's also interesting that they don't actually let them do anything that the patients themselves feel like would be helpful. Like when they want to watch the ball game, she's like, no, we're not going to do that just arbitrarily or... They ask why the ward's locked up during the day. And she's like, well, being in isolation is bad for you. Like... No, I'm not sure that's how that works. <laughs> yeah, and it, even McMurphy also says, like, so if I want to just go home and chill by myself, that's bad for me. Isn't it him that says that? I do that all the time. It's awesome. This part about the focus being on docility and not any sort of treatment, um, there's no, like, measurable progress. There's no way of telling how much anything they're doing is helping because there's no treatment plan. That's the scariest part of this to me is like, okay, how do you know when you're done then? Like, when do you get to go home? When you decide? Right. And like, even the people who are there, quote unquote, voluntarily, like, how, you know, you know, am I, am I okay? Like, can I, should I leave now? Because there's no, there's no markers. I mean, it's just totally interminable. It's just, you know, well, you're just going to be here now. And I think also like, depending on how impressionable you are, what people say about you, you kind of take as fact. I mean, I've done that before. And then been like, so that fucks with your self-image. And then 
if I'm in charge of what I'm doing, but you're the one who tells me how well I'm doing at it, and I don't have any, like, self-awareness, like, that's... Or you, or they have taken it from these men, it seems like. That's pretty dangerous. And I think that's kind of where McMurphy comes into play. I mean, he's, he's like, totally doesn't buy into any of it. He's just like, you guys aren't any more crazy than anybody. So why are you here? Um, and so I think that kind of transitions into that McMurphy as a stimulus to healing and how he just, I mean, how unfortunate is it that this guy who is also in there with them is kind of the person who is treating all of them in as much as any of them ever get treated in the entire film. As I was watching it, I did a term of service in a residential treatment facility too. I remember like just seeing the the war and be like, that's not how it was on the unit. I can't believe you left those scissors out. Like we had a closet with like nothing that you could do to self harm or hurt anyone else. And like everything was like locked, literally locked up. So there was like no, there was nothing you could even think to use as a weapon. And then also I remember as soon as I saw McMurphy, I was like, that's who we had working. Like that's what like the, that personality, that like self assuredness, like pretty masculine, tough love, like, pretty sexy also like usually like <laughs> very because, because of the first two things right it's like yeah, because he was confident and self-assured yeah and he like he felt he makes you feel like everything's gonna be okay too you know like you see him and you're like well, I, want him, I want him to like me like I really hope that he wants to be my friend you know like well that's how I felt at least about Mac Murphy besides my crush on Jack Nicholson okay yeah we said it we can move on now but yeah, and so I feel like the two characters that he helped the most, because he's, we've just, like Sarah said, right, we have established that, like, he's the one doing most of the helping. Yeah. No one else is really trying to do anything to help anyone. Um, they're just trying to, like, tread water and keep their heads up. So um, I feel like he helped, obviously he helped Chief the most. He even says, like, how'd you make me big again? He's a giant, and he's like, I... I used to be big, but now I'm not big anymore. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, he's like, you're a, you're a monster. Like, and that, oh my gosh, that one scene where they're playing basketball, and he's like, just like, tip it over into the basket. And then he does it, and then he like, you know, struts down the court, and he's like, he holds the basket closed, and then when the, when the ball goes in, he like pushes it back up, and then passes it to someone struts back down the court and like scores again like right away like that was so fun for me and then the other guys are also like actually trying they're not like making letting him win or anything so I liked that I liked how even at the end when he's like when uh McMurphy is about to leave or about to escape after the party he is like you should go now and he's like I'm not ready yet I'm not big enough yet and he goes I'm not gonna leave you behind like, we'll wait a while, and then we'll go in the morning or whatever. And then um, at the end, that's why he smothers him. He's like, I'm not going to leave you behind. I thought that was really sweet, too, like that. It was heartbreaking and warming, like, at the same time, the ending. I definitely cried the first time I watched this movie. This was a really good book-to-film portrayal. Yeah, because it, the book itself is so cinematic. Like, you, there's not very much they had to leave out. It was almost like verbatim dialogue. It's very close. And then, okay, so this they did cut this out of the movie, I think. Or at least they didn't go into quite as much detail. But there's like this pep talk in the book where McMurphy is talking to Chief. And he's like, you're so strong. You're going to have all the white girls after you. Like, their legs have to be like that much. Like, this is how, like, you're, you know, he's, do you remember this part? 
Mm-hmm. And he's like, this is how desirable you're going to be. You're going to be so strong and you're going to be so smart and so hot. And then um, he, like, takes his sheet off. He goes, look, you've grown half a foot already. And then, like, goes and sits down. I was like, that's so <laughs> terrible and hilarious. And, like, exactly what that – it fits that dynamic, I think, really well. I felt like they were in a locker room the whole movie. felt like that kind of camaraderie. And then, so, uh, what did you want to say, Sarah? I cut you off about talking about McMurphy and Billy, I think. Billy is just such a lovable little pipsqueak. Like, the kid brother that, like, (laughs) that everyone just sort of wants to take care of. And it's just, I just love the way that McMurphy kind of, like, looks out for him in that big brother kind of way. And is like, here, kid, it's going to be all right. Like, just let me teach you all the things that I know and, like, get you laid. And so I just love his, like, because that's sort of what Billy needs is, like, a big brother figure to, like, take care of him and show him the ropes and, like, explain how life works to him. And then you also said on here, like, during the therapy, McMurphy is the one. Oh, when Cheswick. Like, if he... Yeah. Oh my gosh, Mr. Cheswick is like <laughs> to Nurse Ratched when he's like, "Why are you him? Like, if he doesn't want to talk, just let him not talk." And everyone, and I feel so bad for Cheswick because everybody treats him like he's dumb, and he's not. He just wants everyone to feel whatever they have to feel, and like wants everyone to listen to everyone else. I feel like Cheswick is me. Maybe that's why I like him so much. <laughs> he's like, "Can we just stop fighting, please? Can everyone? Can you just guys just learn something? Can you just let Billy not talk? Like he's my favorite. And the fact that he is like so meek, but also like tells Nurse Ratchet to stuff it. Basically, I just think is adorable. Someone needs to. I mean, really, everyone needs to tell her to stuff it. I also wanted to talk about McMurphy's dynamic with Nurse Ratched because he doesn't know that how much power she has until like halfway through like week two or whatever. And then he's like, why would you let me go on like harassing her if you knew that she held my fate in the palm of her hand like a tiny dying baby bird? What's wrong with you guys? And they're like, we didn't know that you didn't know. He visibly hates her, but he almost beats her at her own game. Like, he's not hes not overtly disrespectful until he chokes her out. No, he was the right amount of sarcastic <laughs> and rebellious, and then, yeah, then mm-hmm. he tried to choke her. Which he was not in the wrong for. Just to go on the record, I in no way, shape, or form blame him for the way he reacted. Yes. No, I just, I, I just hate her so much. I just... I mean, yeah. And she, like, specifically does things to make people... F- to make the patients feel like shit about themselves. Like none of what she does is helpful. I mean, she like, she's like, we're going to talk about your problems here, Mr. Harding, like air your grievances in front of everyone and talk about how much of a shit you were. I mean, he probably was to be fair, but, and it just goes back to that point. Like nothing they do is actually helpful. Yeah. The, the way that they end up fighting back actually is, uh, they kind of manifest in McMurphy at the end, like, that's what uh, Chief is talking about. Um, at, like, I guess, not towards, not at the end, but he does say, like, we made him do it. Like, he saw that we needed it, and then he did it for us. Because we couldn't have done it without him. And he does, like, in a way, like, rescue almost all of them. But, I mean, at his own expense, of course. Which I don't think that with what we know is McMurphy. I mean, obviously, I don't think that's what he wanted his end to be. But I think, you know, he has this tough guy exterior, but he definitely formed some really 
complex and deep relationships with these other people that are in here with him. So I don't think he would, I don't want to say I don't think he would have minded, but I think like in the end, if he were able to know that his untimely end were able to get this many people out, I think he would have, he would have been content with that. Yeah. And I think the most heartbreaking part of Nurse Ratchet is her treatment of Billy and like her specific um, antagonism of him. I mean, we already talked about like his suicide, but the way that she like pushes him towards that and the things that she does and the things that she says is just totally heartbreaking um, and so manipulative and so terrible. I think that was probably one of the hardest things to watch for me was just the way that she acted towards him and knowing how deeply that was going to affect him because she knows these guys and she knows their, their relationships and their problems. Um, she makes specific note that she and his mom are friends unquote, and that she has to tell his mom about what he did. Like, but yeah, for such a short book, I like and appreciated how complicated they made all the relationships and how deep they made all the relationships intertwine. It's- well, so what's Christopher Lloyd's character? Who is he? <laughs> I just, I love Christopher Lloyd, but he was just, he was not a deep character in this movie. I think he really existed solely to antagonize Mr. Harding. Like, I think that was his entire purpose in the film was just to, and also when McMurphy needed an, a cheerleader early on in the film, he was like, well, I'll do it. Like, I'll place a bet. (laughs) One thing that's pretty cool, too, I guess it's not related to the main cast necessarily. It's the the extras that are in the movie, all the background people. Most of them were, like, patients. I don't like that. They weren't actors or, like, extras on their own. Like, they truly were patients. No, uh, I do not like that. Which is kind of neat, too. It's kind of neat to watch it in that regards. But, like, the main cast stayed there during their stay, and... uh, they were there for so long and they worked such long hours that Danny DeVito, uh, in like real life, he uh, missed his wife and was working long hours and like didn't really know how to cope with being where he was. That they had an on site psychiatrist for the cast members, and Danny DeVito actually created his own imaginary character and he had to get psych evaluated. And they were like, Who is Danny DeVito? He's more of like a, he's not like a big character in it at all, but he is in it. What's his name? He is, I can't remember the dude's name. I can't remember one of them. One of them started, like, actually, like, hearing voices and talking to the voices and almost had to quit the film to seek help, which is horrifying because just being there for the set of a film for that long made people crack. I can only imagine what actually being committed would do. Yeah. Um, also, again, with this method acting stuff, that's not a thing. It's acting for a reason. Like, you don't have to actually go through it to be able to act like you did. That's different. I hate it. I hate that. I hate it. He just seems so lazy to me. I mean, I guess it's not, but I guess it's supposed to be more of a commitment, but it's like, doesn't that just mean you're not good at it? Well, I think the reason that they stayed there for the most part is because the Oregon State uh, mental health facility is, uh, it's isolated. There's not tons nearby it. I heard that, like, that's why they camped at one point, and that's how they found Chief, was at that part. So I guess your option was to camp in the state park or stay at the mental facility. I don't like either of those things. That seems really exploitative to me. I don't like that. I don't like that they used actual people with mental illnesses in the film either. 
because they can't consent to that. That's not well, and I think that just like speaks to speaks to the way that we view mental health in society. Like it's fine; they don't know any different. So, like, we'll just come in and film a movie. No, at first I was like, "That's neat," but then they can't consent to it. Really, I guess there's not a whole lot of way to. I don't like that. Uh, that's not right. Yeah, so it says over here, somewhat predictably, this didn't run as smoothly, and on one infamous occasion, a patient jumped out of a third floor window, which had been left over by the film crew. So, like, no, that's horrific as well. So I appreciate they were they were trying to be authentic. I do not appreciate but it. I don't appreciate they it. To that be authentic in a more in- responsible way. I want to know whose idea that was, and who thought that this would be a great idea. Who was like, "There's nothing that could possibly go wrong with this." Now, if some of the main characters had been. It, like in in the ward, that would have been different. Because then they're not a marginal character in their own fucking story. No. They were just here to be entertaining to us. Vomit. Especially in the sixties. We took it we we took a dark turn down a down a one way road. One of the things that like struck me about the movie, how they portrayed gender and sexuality, but I really wanted to talk about like the way that the men are portrayed. So specifically in group um, one of the things that Nurse Ratchet brings up is Mr. Harding and his wife. And, like, I mean, he just seems like a total tool. Like, she talks about... And, of course, the, all of the questions that she's asking in group are, like, very pointed, meant to elicit a specific response in him and in the other patients. Um, but she talks about, like, did you think that your wife was cheating on you? And why did you think your wife was cheating on you? And, like... The responses that he gives are just totally controlling, and he talks about how intelligent he is, and the the assumption there is that he didn't think his wife was all that intelligent, which, of course, is frustrating on, like, a lot of different levels, um, and chauvinistic, and just terrible. They also talk about McMurray, at the beginning of the movie, when he's talking with the doctor why one of the reasons that he ended up in prison in the first place was statutory rape and he's like well she didn't act like she was 15 and i'm just like can we not <laughs> like she also lied to him yes yeah she lied to so me so what was he supposed to do check id right <laughs> yes yeah and so like this whole concept of you know any time that anything like that happens it's well, she didn't act like she was, or she didn't look like she was, or it just reminds me of, like, one of my favorite films of all time with Hard Candy with um, Ellen Page, and she's, like, one of my favorite lines in the movie is where she says, you know, just because a girl acts like a woman doesn't mean that she's ready to do the things a woman does, and I was just like, yes! (laughs) This is so perfect. But he did ask, otherwise how would he have known that she... When I was 15, I wasn't going up to people and being like, hey, I'm 18. I'm 18. It's, I'm Mary Kay, and I'm 18 years old. <laughs> right. like if someone asked me, maybe I would have been like 18. Two on the nose, 19. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's, and I totally think that it's reasonable for him to have just assumed that she was being truthful with him. I just think it's unreasonable for him to, after that was brought to his attention, to be like, well, she didn't act like she was eight. She was 15. Like, Right, like that's not yeah. the right response. You're right. This is not the correct response to this, pers- this particular situation. <laughs> right. What do you expect? Like a drum kick? Like, right. no. 
That's not what you get for that. You need to act with humility and then maybe we believe right. you later. Right. Yes. And like, he's not at all horrified by this. And he was like, you know, talks about, you know, her, her sexuality and all of that. Like, obviously, obviously would have had to ask how old she was to have known that answer, <laughs> but also no remorse or like not, not at all upset about this situation. Just <laughs> Yeah. Or at least he doesn't know how to like make himself sound not guilty, which I mean, maybe Lynn's, it either makes him guilty or makes him not good at being bad. Right. Yeah, I just think he doesn't. He didn't actually care all that much about what Doctor Spivey said, and also he's talking to another man, and even says something to that effect. Seeing what I had seen, you would have done the same. He's talking to a bro, so obviously he doesn't. He's not really that concerned about what Doctor Spivey's going to think because he assumes that Doctor Spivey's thinking the exact same thing that he is. Yes, Lock, locker room talk. I think through the whole thing, women are kind of the antagonists in this movie. You know, women are portrayed as terrifying. And there's this whole fear of the women. The prostitutes are the only, like, female characters that are seen to be wholesome and good. I use prostitutes loosely just because that's they were referred to. Sex workers, Ratchet and her nurses and everyone else. And even kind of, I guess, Billy's mom, you know, she wanted you to be here. So whether that's the truth or not, it's the women are the antagonists in the story. And, gosh, who said it? Someone said it. You know, we're the, we're the victims of matriarchy. Someone says it. Yeah. It had to have been Harding. That sounds like a Harding thing to say. Right. And I think that also has goes back to, like, the homophobic commentary. <laughs> they all basically insinuate. They're like, well, you had trouble getting it up because you're not interested in women. Like, <laughs> just says a lot about, A, the culture, and B, the internalized homophobia. I mean, he probably is gay. Let's be real. Like, <laughs> Did you like how that was his name also? Even though he's the one who's struggling with impotence, his name is Harding? Da-da-tsh. That's on purpose. <clears throat> it has to be. If it's not, it should be. Yeah, otherwise, how would you associate him with anything? Like, that's what you... That's what's bothering him the most, so that's what we hear about the most. Yeah, most of the male patients have been in some kind of damaging relationship with an overpowering female. You know, Chief had one, McMurphy had one, Billy had his mom. Oh, yeah, because his mom was bigger than his dad. I mean, bigger, like he uses the phrase, yeah. I forgot about that, yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely this whole undertone of overpowering females and how they are the bad guys and... You know, the big quote, especially since we're talking about, like, the physical and the mental, like, emasculation and castration of the male characters, you know, if I can't get them below the belt, I'll get them above the eyes. <laughs> I like that phrase. <laughs> mm. Everyone's <clears throat> making the same face. <laughs> so that's really what misogyny is, right? Is like, fear of women. Fear of losing your power to women, which all of these men have experienced before they come to this treatment facility. So, like, why would you put them on a ward where a woman is in charge? Yeah, the answer is in the question, right? You wouldn't, but I don't know. It's like they need to be re-socialized with women. It's like you can't live in a world without women. That's bizarre and strange and just not going to happen. So it's almost like the they have a phobia. Yeah, their relationship with women needs to be definitely, like, wholly reconditioned. Yeah, and then some of them are, like, some of their stuff is caused by other things and that's just how it's manifesting like chief was in the which the korean war uh world war Two. they said he had soldier syndrome at some point which is post-traumatic stress several of them were veterans and that upset me too i don't think any of them had le leading roles 
Um, but while we're talking about being scared of women, oh, do you want to hear a funny story? I was going to say, I do. Let's lighten this mood. So Let's I have, hear it. In one class, I have like a couple of non-traditional students, which I really like because they bring like new perspective to the class. And um, I have them, when we do discussions, sit in a circle. And it's really funny because in the classes where I don't have any non-traditional students, like mostly traditional age, like 18, 19-year-olds, the back fills up first, and then everyone comes like around, and the people who show up late have to sit beside me because they are scared of me. Nobody wants to sit beside me. So this is my third class of the day, and I was like, watch. Like I told one of my students, I really like her a lot. I was like, watch, the seats beside me are going to fill up last because everybody's scared of me. She goes, I'll sit by you. I'm not scared of you. And I was like, yay, come sit by me. And then my other student, a male student, goes, well, I am, but I like to live life on the edge. (laughs) (laughs) And in my head, I was like, I have a thousand good one-liners. But I was like, no, fight it, Mary Kay, fight it. Like, that's inappropriate. Like, don't don't react. (laughs) And I didn't. I said nothing. He's not really scared of me. That's why it's funny. If he was, it wouldn't be funny. Yeah. Um, But while we're talking about being scared of women, I'm just kidding, kind of. Anyway, back to being scared of women in the story. What about Billy and Candy? The idea of, like, women as property. So, going back to, like male sexuality and of course this is in the 50s so perceptions on women are we would hope a little bit different now i mean at least to some degree so candy is sort of mcmurphy's quote-unquote girlfriend i don't know i think girlfriend would probably be a strong word but he definitely treats her like crap he owns her yeah and like the way that he gives her to billy all right so here's this thing that we're gonna do it's gonna be fine i think it just is another example of the way that the women in the film are either on one of two levels treated like crap like property or they're treated like like we talked about women as authority figures and like women as the antagonists so there there's really no in there's very little in between i mean even with candy they probably do treat candy better than anyone else a human at times um any other woman in the film and she treats them better than any other woman in the film does too yes she does it's like because she is already in a a lower position than any of the men in the film relative you know as a sex worker you know she is allowed to be pleasing to them and to be given to them as a form of pleasure instead of being the antagonistic, unpleasant woman that all the other women characters are, which I thought was really interesting. I also had a hard time figuring out what the deal was with her. She seemed to have no independent thought, which I guess is like part of the job. I don't know. But I remember watching it being like, no, I would, I would not be a good sex worker. Let me just say that right now. <laughs> like my mother would be pleased to know I would be a terrible sex worker. <laughs> um, Megan, especially she's like, what authority? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wouldn't do well. I would not thrive. But speaking of sex workers, if you haven't listened to our episode on monster, go do that. Oh yeah. That's terrifying. Fuck. Yeah. So Candy. Also that name. How more stereotypical of a name could we have given this poor girl? Unless- what a consumable idea. The two women in this were like the overpowering matriarch 
and the literally prostitute. Like, there were no other women. I mean, you have, like, your one nurse in the movie, but she doesn't even have a name, I don't think. So it's like these men are forced to live between those two very polar extremes, which is also a not, like, we're talking about they need to be re-socialized, basically. It's like, okay, well, that's not the real world. That's not how it is. And especially in the 50s, like, when would you ever encounter either of those things in, in like, your normal day-to-day life? I don't know. I'm thinking real, like, June Cleaver stuff. No, and I think it's interesting that those are the only two extremes that they ever interact with. Like, why don't any of them ever have normal interactions with women? They don't know any woman who's who's not the devil or the whore like they don't there's no one in between there is no june cleaver let me make you some cookies just chat with you about your day sort of women in any of their lives yeah um what i thought was interesting is like in the interview that i uh heard with ken kesey i think it was in the 80s from terry gross interviewed him she didn't ask about women in the story at all which i thought was an interesting decision and then i also uh, he talked mostly about his personal experience in writing the book and how he worked in the facility, but I can't remember who he was treating, but apparently it was pretty rough. And he was like, I'm not that different from the residents here. I'm definitely more like them than anyone else. Right before he did write the book, he did himself work in a mental facility and he's actually never seen the movie. He saw a part of it accidentally and he does not like the film adaptation. He thinks it butchered his writing so he's never fully watched the entire film i rolled my eyes because it's such a writer thing to say i know but it's such it's like such a close match too right and i think it was so well acted and it was so close to the film adaptation he said like in the 80s at one point he was channel surfing and the movie came on and he like accidentally watched part of it he was like wait a second i recognize what this is and then changed the channel so yeah so he's never actually seen the full movie which also makes me roll my eyes. So, like, how do you know if it butchered your book if you've never actually seen the full adaptation? That, and then also, what kind of arrogance lets you not see something, like a major thing that you inspired? And then also, are you sure it's not just, like, a very accurate adaptation and you don't like what you did? Possibly, because this book literally makes the top, or the, the movie, at least, the film adaptation, is highly recognized as one of, like, the most award-winning classic novels. It constantly is in every sort of set of, you know, best movie sets, top 100 sets. It's in, like, the top 10, like, best movies of all time. Yeah, and Jack Nicholson didn't even have to carry this one like he did The Shining. So. I only got you to agree to watch it because Jack Nicholson was in it, but that's okay. Look, I would watch him do laundry. I don't give a fuck. What? I bet he can fold a fitted sheet. I bet he can. What a sexy thing. Andrew can't fold no damn fitted sheet. I can fold a fitted sheet, but I, I don't look like I don't look like Jack Nicholson while I do it, but I can do it. Before we get on a four-hour <laughs> tangent on Jack Nicholson, back to the movie. The author worked in a like a mental facility, and he wrote it to kind of bring light to the conditions that was going on in a lot of these facilities. And I think the big thing, like the takeaway from this movie, was the ECT. So basically a lot of the psychiatrists at the time will basically never forgive the film for what it did to ECT, because it kind of brought this negative kind of stigma to it, and which it kind of should have. It started back in the 1930s. It induces seizures, so it shocks your brain to cause a seizure, and they thought it would cure or provide comfort to those with mental illness, basically by just shocking you, and it was also used to treat homosexuality. They uh, they just wanted to, to shock the gay away. 
Sorry. Which, Pardon my eye roll that no one could see. <laughs> yeah, which uh, we all rolled our eyes with you. Yeah, so that's what it kind of, you know, originally they were trying to induce seizures and they would use a medicine called metrazole. And metrazole caused like this horrific feeling of like horror and despair before the seizure would occur. And so they decided that this was not a good choice. So they came up with ECT. And so then they just shocked you in that feeling of despair and death right before went away their version of ethical and treating mental illness, which there hasn't really been tons of proven research on ECT working in the way that they are using it in this sense. There are cases where ECT has been used and it has worked, but for their treatment of just like basic, you know, umbrella term of mental illness and for homosexuality, it hasn't been proven. And so it did uh, kind of irreparably tarnish ECT. And so it drastically decreased, you know, the eighties was one of the last times that we saw ECT being commonly used. In the movie, when they, it's when McMurphy, Chief, and Cheswick are all lining up for the shocks. Cheswick is the only one who's freaking out, but he's already scared. Like, Murphy goes next, and he's just like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? Just explain it to me. Like, I'm not scared. And I wanted to be like, I understand that toxic masculinity has, like, made you the way that you are. Like, the idea that you have to be something that you're not. But, like, um, also... What's your goal here, people? Like, what's the point of doing this? Like, because that, that's the most, that's the scariest scene to me in the whole movie is when they, when she's like, what is, uh, what are you putting on my head? And, he, and she's like, conductant. And then she just like shocks him and he bites down on that, uh, I guess it's a mouth guard. Yeah, it's basically a leather strap. And then Chief in the book is talking about how it takes most of the time, depending on how many treatments they give you, several weeks to recuperate from it. Like, what? That's crazy. You're just, like, sending electricity through a human being. Well, who the fuck? Yeah, and Ratchet describes it. It says it does the work of a sleeping pill, the electric chair, and the torture rack all at the same time. And, I mean, and that's truly what it did, especially in the way that they were using it. It was just a way to subdue somebody. Yeah, and, like, the way that they portray <clears throat> in the film, when McMurphy comes back into the room and is, like, pretending that he's all out of it, none of them are shocked. I mean, they're horrified, but none of them are surprised by this behavior, which is just... It's supposed to be, like, a temporary solution to a permanent problem, but in this case it causes a lot of irreparable damage because they're just using it like they were giving out candy it's like oh you back talk let's just shock the shit out of your brain yeah are we going to talk about lobotomies too because that used to be a pretty standard treatment too uh separating the frontal lobe from the rest of the brain i think and that's really terrifying Yeah, just severed the connective tissues between all the lobes is what it used to be well, the way that I've seen it when I've watched the documentaries on it being reenacted is it basically looks like an ice pick is being put into someone's eye socket and then hammered back and forth. Through, yeah, through your orbital socket, basically, which they just, yeah. How you, can you see what's going on in there? You'll know where you're stabbing that thing. Everyone's brain is structured a little differently. What the hell? And then, like, you've seen them go wrong, like uh, Rosemary Kennedy. Yeah, and they, instead of being like, look how uh, the medical... And psychological industries treatment destroyed our child's brain. They were like, "That's embarrassing. Like we can't let anybody know about that." When like he was, like, her brother was a fucking president. Like really? Like help someone? I mean, okay. So that and then 
there's two ways of doing it in the in the book, right? Like in the book, they do it a different way than they do it in the movie to make they, Murphy. They probably did like truly open that all up right there. Which is, I mean, that is how they used to do, like, really shoddy old-time lobotomies. It wasn't truly just separating. There were, like, those. sometimes they would truly just remove a frontal lobe, which is gross. Well, also, and, like, you're, that person will never be... Yeah, well, that's, that's never... why it's gross. It's not gross in the sense of, you know, like, gross brains are squishy. It's gross because we're taking such a drastic measure when there's such less invasive ways. We're doing the most work for something when we could have done way less work to subdue this. Yeah, I did love at the end when Chief was like, no, you can't live like this. I feel like that was the most noble part of the whole... Yeah, what do you say, like, there's nothing in the face... Yeah, he looked at him and was like, there's nothing in the face, basically. Like, it's just a body. And he wasn't going to let him suffer or be degraded like that. So he just, he ended it for him. It was like, a, it was a mercy killing. Well, he says, I won't leave him behind. And he doesn't, I think he also doesn't want him to be, like, the way that they talk about the other patients who are less abled or who are nonverbal, like, he doesn't want him to be one of those patients. And he's like, so if I'm going to leave... Uh, since I can't actually take you with me, I'm just not going to leave you here like this because all of the patients who don't speak or who are not mentally capable, you know, the other patients even view them completely differently because at one point, <laughs> Jack Nichols- McMurphy is like, these poor fucks, like, you really that they have a say in anything? Like, when they're talking about watching the the, the baseball game, he's like, you mean these guys get a vote? They don't even know what's going on. Like, they don't even know where they are. I think that Chief didn't want him to be one of those poor fucks who has no say in anything and knows nothing about, like, can't communicate that they know anything about what's happening around them, even though I'm sure that they have way more awareness than they're given credit for. Yeah, and so while we're talking about, like, the voice of the residents. Um, how did you guys feel about the idea that Ken Kesey is a white guy writing from the perspective of a Native American person who experiences a white savior? Knowing the time period that takes place and, you know, kind of going back, because it makes me a little uncomfortable if this was a modern novel of this whole concept of the white savior and he's, you know, coming in and he's writing about the experience and the plights of a Native American man that experienced a white savior, like you said, and it makes me a little bit even more uneasy when I go, wait, this was written in the 1950s. So it's definitely a little unsettling to me, and it kind of made me question exactly what did Chief being Native American really add to the story or the plot or anything, and I couldn't come up with any good reason necessarily. Except for that they call him Chief, which is not his name. No, but if he was a white boy named Bob, would it have changed the plot at all? No, and I don't think it would have. No, it's just that the white guy came in and, like, saved the day. Oh, but then we wouldn't have believed that he could be ignored. Or that he was stealthy. Or that his dad was a drunk. And by that I mean it would have been equally as easy to believe any of those things, just not stereotyped. On the one hand, I'm like, hey, good, we have some, you know... People of color in this book. Yeah, and I forgot also. So that was not, uh, I guess, either it's me or it's him. I don't know. Um, Able to forget. And then also it's like, I mean, I'm glad that this is a minority that's being represented, but like... Do you feel like it's okay? I wanted him to be represented from an authentic point of view. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. He's a token. True. All of the above. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would change it. I just have questions about it. Yeah. I think I'm just curious as to what his 
like why was that his decision to make him Native American versus even another minority? Also, he literally does not have a voice for the first two-thirds of it. So, I mean, on the other hand, it's the whole thing is being told from his perspective. And then on the other side, it's like, well, but McMurphy failed to save him. He just gave him the courage to save himself. So there's that. I mean, like, I'm not saying, like, don't do it. I'm just saying I have some questions. And bad representation is not really all that much better than no representation at all. Like, if he adds nothing to the story except that he's rescued by a white man and then feels indebted to said white man, are we doing anything for this character? Are we doing anything for this marginalized group of people? And I think, like Megan said, you know, it, it really does nothing for the story. So you have to wonder why there was that specific choice to introduce this character right and then also like put this horrible thing on his conscience that now he has to live like sure he escaped but now he's got like this horrible thing on his conscience what the mercy killing yes oh i don't think that he would feel bad about that i don't know why i just like i don't feel bad about it i don't think like maybe he shouldn't have done it at all no i'm not sure that he's guilty but i'm sure i don't know that's it happening is definitely something that he thinks about yeah that's probably yeah I can buy that. I do think it's important to also think about, because, you know, we were trying to go back and we were talking about, you know, like, if the book takes place in the 50s, well, then Chief would have fought in, you know, a previous war, that kind of thing. The government is still trying to decide at that point if Native Americans should get to keep their land or if they should even, if they should keep their tribal customs or if they have to follow our laws, if they keep their land or if the land is ours. So I think that's something to maybe consider with this as That's a really scary thing, too, while we're talking about what makes it scary. It's definitely needed in such a dark topic, too, though. So I think it's what kept this movie lighthearted and kind of fun. I especially love his dynamic with McMurphy. They have a charming back and forth. It's pretty adorable. Yeah, and in a way, like, Chief rescues McMurphy at the end. Like, he gets him out. We were kind of talking about how the book and the film did have a negative impact as well. You know, it kind of perpetuated some of these stereotypes of mentally ill people and people that have some kind of mental diagnosis or mental illness whether it's you know anxiety schizophrenia or anything else are portrayed of one of two ways they're either violent or they're like the comedic relief and we definitely kind of see that get perpetuated especially with even outside of the movie with just the way the film was made in the film crew yeah I also feel like, though, coming from, like, a contemporary standpoint, it's like, I felt like all of them were human, though. And in other depictions, it's like, oh, crazy, period. That's not really the way that it works, though. No. They definitely did get fully developed personalities and fully developed relationships, which is refreshing, because that's definitely not something that you would get, especially not in 1950. Um, And I, I was thinking, too, like... The dynamic among the residents was really nice, too, because it does seem like they're like once McMurphy gets there and starts sort of inspires them, they're having fun together. Like I was like, I was like I said earlier, I feel like they're in a locker room the whole time. And I know that that's not the way. I mean, I know from firsthand experience, that's not the way that it looks all the time. But best case scenario, while things aren't perfect, there is an increase in a. And patients' rights and the way we ethically do treat people in these facilities. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better. But at least when the film was released, or I guess decreased trust, increased like a lack of trust in healthcare providers, and they were kind of shown in this horrible light, which I mean, at that time, it might have truly been justified. We were using ECT and lobotomies a lot up through the 80s. There are still people that are in favor of ECT for things like schizophrenia and homosexuality. 
on a tangent, in an in another aspect of, of trust, first of all, why is everything in this hospital unlocked? What how why do the patients so often end up in like the nurses area? I'm just curious. Like <laughs> Why is this room never locked? I just want to know. Because it would make for poor entertainment. <laughs> it would. Sarah. Like, if he had to crawl in the window to turn the music off, I th- personally think that would be more entertaining. But They probably weren't back in the day. Who knows? Which is interesting. I like the tangent. But uh, why is this scary? Out of all of the traditional horror movies that we could have picked, why was I like, hey, Mary Kay, let's do One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> We've covered a lot of the reasons why this movie is horrifying. I mean, especially watching it. Watching it in the 80s probably would have been a little bit less specifically horrifying than watching it in 2018. Yeah. But, like, the way that we, quote-unquote, treated mental health, the way that we, quote-unquote, treated mental patients, the way that that we, as we've discussed, treated minorities, I mean, it just is definitely horrifying um and the fact like we said that it was that there was no goal there were no outcomes like you weren't working towards anything i mean my ryan my husband works in the mental health field as well and there are you know definitely specific goals and outcomes and achievements that are things that we're working towards and there was absolutely nothing and at the very least even if even if someone has to be institutionalized their entire life, there's at least some goals for self-improvement or some goals for tasks or some goals for something. And there's nothing in this whole film. I think it's scary to think that we would treat people as uh, science experiments at time and that this is based, you know, like on a true story. Basically, this is based on real life. This 30, 40 years ago, like this was this was real life. For a lot of people. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I said most of mine earlier, just the idea that someone can shock you for therapy, take out part of your brain. They call it mental castration, which is interesting, that terminology. But um, that, and then uh, the idea in the beginning that they can convince Chief that he can't speak when he can. Those are mine. Do we miss anything before we get to, like, a closing question? Do we want to be, like... Something a little lighthearted, like maybe like our favorite scene? Does, or does everyone kind of have one of those anyway? Yeah, I have a favorite. I like it best when it's the first time that we see McMurphy in Spivey's office. When he's like, what are you here for? And he's like, well, like I said, I like to fuck and fight too much. And um, and then Spivey goes, you know, he's explaining the whole thing, the transferring from the prison. It's exposition. He goes, well, are you happy to be here? And then um, we look back at McMurphy, and he's just sitting there like this. That's my favorite line <laughs> when he's like this. In the like, he's just like, "What do you think?" Like, no, of course not. Um, that's my favorite line is him not saying anything. Yeah, <laughs> duh. I think my favorite is um, like just like the whole boat scene, and I think one of the reasons it's my favorite is because we are seeing them outside of the walls, really letting loose, and I think that's one of my favorite. Parts about my job is just when I guess I'm not actually working with one of the kiddos that I work with and they're just being kids or they do something that's just so funny and so just typical of a, you know, quote unquote, like normal kid. And you just see them and I'm just like, that's just so typical. And it's so it's one of the major times that we see them in the movie just as people 
and it's funny, and it's so absolutely typical of what you would expect if you just put all these people on a boat. And I loved it. I cracked up through the whole thing. I think my favorite scene is when they're in the bathroom playing and Cheswick, I just like super want to hug Cheswick all the time. I'm telling you, like, this is my, this is my person. <laughs> he's, he, I identify with Cheswick, but he's like, who was it? Uh, when they're giving Harding a hard time about Cheswick putting a hotel on the board and they're like, just play the game, Harding. Like, just play the game. He was like, what do you mean? I am playing the game. It takes four of the little greenhouses and then a hotel. You don't have a hotel. And they're like, it makes me laugh the way that they like sort of stick up for each other, <laughs> but also give each other a hard time at the same time. And then of course, uh, McMurphy also sprays him with the hose, which I find highly entertaining because Harding is so buttoned up and straight laced and just gets super frustrated. So that's my favorite. So thank you, Sarah for coming to talk to us this was really fun it was super fun yeah i enjoyed it i enjoyed the movie a lot i liked watching it um i think i've told megan i've seen the play um i've seen a production of it before but i had never actually seen the film and so it was really interesting to see the differences and to watch jack nicholson and like all these big name actors um sort of just get to hang out together so what are y'all doing next on the uh Our next episode is, is the girl with all the gifts that's mary Kay's pick yeah that was my pick it's on uh march 18th it's a couple weeks from now and i'm excited because i've never seen that one either and i don't really actually know anything about it except for the picture and like the tagline like the headline the website post so you'll like it we'll be back that then and if you liked everything trying to kill you please rate review and subscribe to us on itunes and then tell everyone you know (laughs) bye